Hello listeners, welcome to episode 2 at Sodium Podcast, where we seek to take action through education in the community. Today we are joined by Dr. Sally Warner, who is currently an assistant professor of climate science at Brandeis University. She specializes in climate science and oceanography and received her PhD at the University of Washington. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. In today's episode, we'll be looking to cover the topics of ecology, pollution, and global warming. We are interested in discussing climate change contributors, the effects on different ecosystems, and alternative energy sources. So I think for the first question we had was sort of how does global warming differ from climate change as a whole? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I much prefer the term climate change because it encompasses the wide range of impacts that the excess CO2 in our atmosphere is having. So yes, the climate is getting warmer, the globe is warming, but because of that warming, we're seeing shifts in weather patterns um, with stronger storms, um, longer and stronger heat waves, things like that. Um, But we're also seeing things like ocean acidification where this excess CO2 in the atmosphere gets dissolved directly into the ocean, making the oceans more acidic. And, um, And so something like that, I don't feel is really encompassed in the term global warming in the same way that it is encompassed in the term climate change. So I try to use the term climate change myself, but um, essentially when you hear someone use the term global warming, they mean climate change. So in a lot of ways we can use them interchangeably. I just, I prefer climate change. Uh, So another question we had relating to climate change were what were greenhouse gases and what role do they play? I think that they're talked about a lot. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the most commonly talked about greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide, CO2. Um, So greenhouse gases are gases that um, exist in the atmosphere and they absorb radiation that's emitted by the earth but that's kind of technical another way you could think of it is they act like a blanket you can imagine that by having greenhouse gases in the atmosphere it helps hold heat within the earth's system without that heat escaping through the atmosphere out into space um and so yeah so like i said the most common greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide um in that it's the most abundant in the atmosphere but other greenhouse gases include things like methane which is ch4 um methane also is commonly called natural gas like a lot of us use natural gas to heat our homes um methane is at much smaller concentrations than co2 but it's actually much Um, more potent of a greenhouse gas. Um, Nitrous oxide is another greenhouse gas that's emitted by a lot of agricultural processes. Um, And a lot of refrigerants like chlorofluorocarbons um, are also greenhouse gases and they are at very small concentrations, but they're very, very potent. So yeah, so essentially greenhouse gases, we need them in our atmosphere. If If they weren't in our atmosphere, the globe would be frozen and potentially there would not be life on earth if the whole planet was frozen. And so we need some greenhouse gases, but it's very worrying to see the levels at which they're going up and up and up because that we know just based on the physics of how greenhouse gases works, that that means a lot more heat is being held um, by that blanket of greenhouse gases covering the earth. 
I think connecting to that idea of greenhouse gases, I think a common question is sort of, uh, what are the largest contributors to climate change today? Um, well, the biggest contributor to climate change is the burning of fossil fuels. Um, and so we do that by driving vehicles. Um, that happens also for how we generate electricity because most, a lot of power plants burn fossil fuels like natural gas or coal even. Um, so, so that's a lot of how greenhouse gases get into the atmosphere. Um, fossil fuels are called fossil fuels because they're essentially made of fossils. They're made of ancient living matter, be it algae or other um, ancient, ancient plants, mostly ancient plants that um, were buried under the surface of the earth for millions of years. And in those millions of years, the fat that was in those plants, the, like the oils, has become what we now use as um, oil, natural gas, and coal. Those are like the three forms of, of, um, of fossil fuels that we use. And so the reason it's so problematic is because the carbon that's in those fossil fuels has been stored in the earth for millions of years, and we're extracting that carbon and putting it into the atmosphere, and that is causing, in the form of CO2, and that is causing there to be more and more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So what is the current trajectory of global warming? Like, is it following an exponential path or a more linear one to heat up the earth? Well, certainly the warming that we're seeing, see, all right, so we start with, we can talk about this in many different ways. The levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, they have been going up um, exponentially in the past, over the past um well, they've been increasing since the Industrial Revolution in about 1850, um, but in the last 40 years in particular, they have really accelerated how much is being emitted. Um, and then we can also look at how much the climate has warmed. I wouldn't say that that has been exponential um, necessarily, but it definitely is warming at an increasing rate. And then like, what do we see for the future? Well, it all depends on how much we, how much, how much fossil fuels we keep emitting. If we manage to, if countries manage to live up to their goals that they set in the Paris Climate Agreement, hopefully we can limit warming to below two degrees C, ideally one and a half degrees C. The Earth has already warmed by over one degree C, so we're already well on our way to those thresholds. Um, but if we don't curb how much fossil fuels are being emitted, then we could be on track to warm by as much as about 3.6 degrees Celsius, which is, um, which is over 7 degrees Fahrenheit. So in terms of pollution, you talked a lot about fossil fuels, but how do you think like other sorts of pollution, such as plastic pollution, can play a role in climate change? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question, and I think it's something that Environmental problems encompass a much larger scope than just climate change, but environmental problems are also very much woven together. Um, so something like plastic pollution, 
the way that it's connected to climate change, like plastics are not directly contributing to climate change, except in potentially their manufacture, um, because manufacturing processes do tend to emit because they use a lot of energy, they tend to emit greenhouse gases because they use energy. Um, but like plastic pollution itself, like climate change is due to the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And plastics don't directly contribute to the levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So I wouldn't say that plastic pollution is necessarily... Like it's certainly not one of the causes of climate change. That said, it certainly is a really big problem. Um, like we're seeing huge amounts of plastics, say, in the ocean in the form of microplastics. Um, so I do think limiting plastic pollution, that is definitely one of the one of the numerous environmental problems that we need to that we need to combat so another environmental problem is something like habitat habitat degradation like ruining habitats sometimes that contributes to climate change say if we're burning a forest to convert it to farmland that's going to put co2 into the atmosphere because you are removing trees that uptake co2 you are also um like in the process of burning trees, you're adding CO2 to the atmosphere. Um, uh, but it also, then there's wider, like habitat degra degradation, there's wider, um, there's wider ramifications that it impacts like wildlife that was living in what was the forest and can't live in what is now agricultural lands. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of environmental problems um, and climate change is one of them and it's certainly, huge um but there there are other types of pollution that aren't necessarily contributing to climate change but are definitely things that we also need to worry about in recent years with an increase in natural disasters i think this has become more publicized but why does climate change cause an increase in natural disasters and increase their severity that's a great question. Um, and one thing that I'm really excited about um, over the past few years has been the increase in what's called attribution science. Um, and so this is where scientists can use computer models and they look at, okay, how often would something like a category five hurricane happen? How frequently would it happen if there wasn't climate change? So like if CO2 levels were at pre-industrial levels and then they can compare it to, well, how often does a really strong hurricane happen with CO2 levels where they are today? Um, and so then they can compare them and they can say, okay, um, this particular event was this much more likely because of climate change. So things like heat waves are really easy to attribute to climate change. The, climate is getting warmer. So to have a heat wave where you have um, numerous days where temperatures are much above the norm, that's a heat wave. And that's pretty easy to contribute to climate change. For instance, the heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest last summer, summer um, 2021, um, which led to record-breaking heats um, in British Columbia, Washington State, Oregon, like that could not have happened without climate change. 
Um, hurricanes are a little bit harder to attribute, although we know that stronger hurricanes are becoming more frequent. Um, hurricanes also hold more moisture because a warming atmosphere holds more moisture. Um, events like floods, those can be attributed to climate change. Um, because a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, it means that there's more moisture in the atmosphere that can rain out in the form of um, in the form of very, very, very intense storms. Um, so, but something like a large flooding event, you can't necessarily say this is 100% climate change, but you can say this, this flood is more likely to occur because climate change is happening. Um, so yeah, events like hurricanes, heat waves, floods, droughts um, are all are all linked are all linked to climate change um, because we know because because a warmer atmosphere holds more water um, because warmer warmer air means more evaporation of land so that can lead to droughts things like that um, in general wetter places will become wetter and drier places will become drier with climate change so looking at a sort of different idea I think many skeptics of climate change sort of question if the current climate crisis is uh, from a natural climate cycle. So how are scientists positive that it is a product of human activity? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's numerous ways that scientists can, that scientists know this. Um, so one is that naturally the sources of CO2 to the atmosphere include things like volcanoes. Well, in a given year we emit over about 80 times more CO2 into the atmosphere. Humans emit 80 times more CO2 into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels than all the volcanoes combined. So, um, so we, so there's there's things like that, and we know how much fossil fuels are being emitted into the atmosphere because fossil fuel companies tell us how much oil and gas they sell. And so we know that fossil fuels are being burned and we know what happens when they burn. They release CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. So um, so those, those are two ways that we can tell. Um, uh, the other, another way is that um, so besides just knowing how much fossil fuels are burned and knowing the physics of how that happens, um, we can run climate models um, and like on a computer, on a big, on big supercomputers. And if you run a climate model that has no anthropogenic CO2, so no CO2 in the atmosphere from humans, what we see is that the temperature of the earth does not match the temperature that is observed. Whereas if we, in the climate model, if it's run with levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that match what have been measured, we see that the temperature does match what is observed. So that's another way is that climate models show us that if it weren't for anthropogenic or human-derived emissions of fossil fuels, the climate would be much cooler than it is. So that's reason number two. So we know we know fossil fuel companies are selling a lot of fossil fuels and we know those are getting burned. So we know that CO2 goes in the atmosphere. Climate models show that without this excess CO2, we couldn't match the, the level of um, the level of warming that's observed. 
The third way is actually a little bit more complicated, and I don't know how in-depth you want to get into the chemistry, but we can use things like chemical isotopes. So um, plants tend to prefer, when they photosynthesize, they uptake um, light carbon. They, they preferentially take up carbon-12 over carbon-13. Um, and therefore, fossil fuels tend to have, like, obviously there's more carbon-12, there's a lot more carbon-12 in the atmosphere. It's like 99% of carbon in the, in the atmosphere, or carbon is like 99% carbon-12 and not carbon-13, but we can compare the ratio. And essentially, fossil fuels, because they used to be living plants, have more carbon-12 than carbon-13 than like an average ratio that you'd find in like a rock somewhere. And so as we're burning more fossil fuels, we can actually see the isotope ratio of the atmosphere change, showing that the excess CO2 that's being put into the atmosphere has sources from plants that lived millions of years ago in the form of fossil fuels. I think that the reason that so many people are skeptical of climate change is because it's become a very political issue. Um, and so as a scientist, I can scream at the top of my lungs, here are the scientific ways that we know that climate change is happening. I don't think it's necessarily going to change the minds of people who are denying climate change. That said, the playbook of the fossil fuel companies is changing. Um, it's less about denial. They are not outright denying climate change anymore. Um, instead, they're trying to delay progress on decarbonization of the economy. Um, so now it's much more about doomism, like, oh, this is way too big of a problem for us to solve all right, we might as well not do anything. Or, well, it doesn't matter. Like, let's just delay this action. We don't want to move too quickly on installing these solar panels. Um, that's another way that they can continue to burn fossil fuels. Um, so I think it's important to, and over 78%, or according to um, the Yale Climate Change Communication, um, the number of Americans who believe that climate change is happening is going up and up and up, and it's well over the majority of Americans who believe that climate change is happening. So denialists are becoming a much, a much smaller minority, um, even though they kind of have this outsized voice um, because of all the money that fossil fuel companies have put into denying doomism, delay, um, and things like that. So do you think that it's really important that we depoliticize the issue of climate change in order to really address it in society? That's a really tough question. Um, I, like, in my ideal world, the government is willing to spend money on climate solutions at a very rapid at a very rapid pace. That is what needs to happen in order for us to solve climate change. Um, it's not like individuals recycling, that's not going to be enough. We need very large scale structural change. Um, so, so in terms of should we depoliticize this, I guess, Yes, I would love for us to have a government that's willing to act like climate change is an urgent issue. Um, 
but at the same time, I I do believe that in a lot of ways, it's politicians who need to be willing to make changes because, yes, individual actions matter in that um, I show that it's something that I value by doing things like putting solar panels on my house. But that's a privilege. That's like a privileged thing for me to be able to do um, as a homeowner. Like for you as students, I don't know, like I, I teach university students. Most of my students do not own homes or have the cash to like buy an electric vehicle. So a lot of climate solutions are pretty inaccessible. Um, but doing things like voting for candidates who care about climate change, um, writing to your government representatives, marching at climate rallies, um, uh, educating yourself about about climate change and climate solutions, learning about all the ways that you can put your talents to use in a career surrounded by like working on climate solutions. That can that is maybe one of the biggest ways that young people can help is to have a career focused on climate solutions because then you can make changes that are bigger than yourself. And I think in a lot of ways that's what needs to happen. So should we depoliticize climate change? I think it's really important for um, people who have been elected to acknowledge the importance of implementing climate solutions at a very rapid pace. But I also think that they're the ones who have the purse strings to make really large scale change. So I don't, I don't necessarily want to pull the change out of the government because how is it going to like, they're the ones with the most money to be able to make change. But yes, climate change should not be a Democrat versus Republican issue because it, like a hurricane does not say, oh, I'm only going to destroy the homes of people who vote for a certain party. It doesn't work like that. Everyone's going to be an impact. Um, going back to what you said earlier, uh, another common misconception about climate change seems that only certain species are susceptible to um, going like extinct and they're not they're not uh, strong enough to survive but ecosystems are very interconnected so how can alterations in a single keystone species damage the rest of the ecosystem yeah that's that's really interesting like i feel like polar bears have been this like poster child for climate change or even back to the days of global warming for the last 30 years right like oh save the polar bears um i think in a lot of ways that maybe did a a bit of a disservice because then it makes it seem like oh it's just this animal that lives super far away who's going to be impacted and for some people that really tugs on their heartstrings for other people they kind of see that as like well it's not going to impact me directly um so yes in an ecosystem i think it's really important to remember that it so like Animals, plants, all living organisms are so dependent on each other. So any disruptions that cause um, extinctions or degradation of habitat in a certain way will have impacts that affect everything from small bugs all the way up to large charismatic megafauna. So I think it is really important to realize that um, that yeah, climate change, climate change's impact is gonna have impacts both on species that we see and and recognize, like polar bears, but also on species that 
are much less <laughs> less obvious, but potentially very, very important to ecosystems. So you mentioned ocean acidification, and I think a large focus of climate change is sort of on land. But what are the sort of effects of climate change on marine life? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And as an oceanographer, I think a lot about the impacts of climate change on the ocean. So coral reefs are dealing with the double whammy of ocean acidification, which is called caused by atmospheric CO2 being dissolved into the ocean. And when it dissolves into the ocean, it becomes more acidic. Um, and by being more acidic, it makes it harder for organisms that have shells made out of calcium carbonate to, to create their shells. It takes more energy for them to create their shells. And so what's car calcium carbonate? Essentially, you can think of it as chalk or limestone. Um, so it's, it's essentially calcium carbon and oxygen mixed together, but all sorts of marine species make their shells out of calcium carbonate. Um, oysters, um, small phytoplankton like coccolithophores, many different types of coral, things like pteropods, which are uh, otherwise sometimes called sea snails. So there's all sorts of shelled and hard body, hard bodied organisms in the ocean that are impacted by ocean acidification. It's just as the oceans become more acidic, it becomes harder for these organisms to create their shells. Um, if it becomes really acidic, it can actually actively dissolve those shells. The other thing that's happening in the ocean um, is that oceans are becoming much, much warmer. And so that is impacting um, species like for instance, the American lobster, which is really important for us here in Massachusetts, the lobster population has been moving steadily northward. So 20, 30 years ago, places like Long Island Sound had, an, had lobsters, but because waters became warmer, it became more likely for things like bacterial parasites to in, to impact the well-being of lobster and essentially Long Island Sound no longer has lobsters they've been decimated that said they've moved northwards to warmer to colder waters so places like Maine actually have a really booming lobster fishery right now um, but who knows what will happen in the next few decades how much further will the lobster fishery move northwards um, into Canadian waters to try to keep moving towards colder and colder waters. So warming waters are causing habitat shifts but they also can cause um, they can have really detrimental impacts on corals which corals can't really move in the same way that lobsters can. Um, and corals, when they are subjected to prolonged heat stress, um, what happens is called coral bleaching. And corals live in this symbiotic relationship between the coral and tiny little um, algae called dinoflagellates. Um, but in this case, we call them zooxanthellae. Um, they live within the tissues of the coral and it's this mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and but when the corals become stressed by heat, they expel the zooxanthellae the from their tissues, so the coral turned white because it was the algae that was creating the colors within the coral. And if the coral stays at these elevated heat levels, that um, they eventually die. Um, and so in 2016, um, there was a really massive coral bleaching event that have impacted corals pretty much in tropical waters across the globe. Um, 
So coral reefs are particularly vulnerable because they're impacted by ocean acidification because their shells are made out of calcium carbonate and because they're so heat sensitive, so coral bleaching. So corals really are dealing with this double whammy of both of those impacts, but warm water are, is also affecting lots of other species. I gave that example of lobster, but we see this with lots of different fisheries of fish moving habitat either to deeper, colder waters or to to more um, high latitude waters um, and then ocean acidification impacting lots and lots of species that that create their shells. So on the other side of that sort of idea, uh, do you think with water having a high specific heat that it's sort of helping with climate change? That's a great question. So yeah, the ocean has absorbed 90, over 93% of the excess heat that we've added to the atmosphere um, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So 93%, think about that. Like if that heat had gone, stayed in the atmosphere, the atmosphere would be way, way, way warmer than it is today. So in some ways, we're really lucky that we have an ocean that is able to absorb this heat because it's managed to essentially buffer how much heat we feel um, in terms of how much the atmosphere has warmed. Um, that said, though, the amount of CO2 and heat that the ocean is going to continue to be able to absorb is um, is going to become less and less and less. Um, as as So it's not an infinite reservoir for us to put heat and CO2, and we see the detrimental impacts of that. But yes, the ocean has been pretty helpful in terms of like absorbing, um, yeah, 93, over 93% of the heat and um, about a third of the CO2 that's been put into the atmosphere as well. The ocean does have the capacity to be um, useful as a climate solution in a lot of ways as well. So in, in addition to absorbing heat, the ocean, um, well, we can do things like put up offshore wind turbines. Um, people are working on things like tidal energy generation as another source of green, green electricity or wave energy um, generation. Those are much more um, early on in the stages of development as wind energy is. Um, but natural ecosystems like mangroves and wetlands, these are really, really important ecosystems that can help um, buffer coastlines from sea level rise. And they also have the ability to um, absorb lots and lots of carbon from the atmosphere. And so we need to be planting or um, protecting and restoring wetlands and mangroves um, as much as we can, because they're really, really important as we adapt to climate change, um, both in their ability to protect shorelines and their ability to absorb carbon dioxide. Another effect of climate change is causing ocean levels to rise because of things like glaciers melting. So how will that affect people living in coastal cities or towns? Yeah, so sea level rise is definitely something that we need to be worried about. Um, and so just a few kind of clarifications. Like you said, yes, melting of glaciers is causing sea level, level sea levels to rise. So glaciers on top of mountains, but um, the very large ice caps on top of Greenland and Antarctica are also melting. Um, 
One thing, one misconception that a lot of people have, um, sea ice in the Arctic, when it melts, um, it actually does not cause sea level to rise, but it does change the color of the earth. And that's something else that we can get into if you're interested in. Um, but also just warmer water is, takes up more space than cold water. So that's another, thermal expansion is another thing that's causing sea levels to rise. Um, so what is what are the impacts of sea rising seas? Well, erosion is a really big issue, um, and sea level rise. It may so by twenty one hundred kind of projections are are best projections these days are around a meter of sea level rise by twenty one hundred. If we're if we kind of don't do a very good job at limiting our emissions, um, and so. In Boston, we're already seeing things like sunny day flooding, which means that on a day where it's sunny, so it's not due to a rainstorm, but it's just due to the natural um, tidal variation, tidal height variation um, at times of the year when there are really, really high tides, we're already seeing flooding of roads. And things like that are just gonna get worse and worse and worse. So instead of it just being at some of the highest tides of the year where we have sunny day flooding, it's gonna start happening um, at like, multiple times a month when we have spring tides and really high tides um, associated with those spring tides. Um, and it will be, and eventually we'll get to the point where it will be pretty much every high tide we have sunny day flooding. So, um, and places like, like Venice are really, or have done Venice, Miami beach. Um, they are doing a lot to try to control how much, um, water is impacting, how much water is causing floods on sunny days. So that's one thing, but we also need to con consider like erosion when it happens that as, as water reaches higher and higher level, it eats away at the land. And so that can cause, like if there's a really big storm, um, with that storm, you can have storm surge, which means the wind, the wind is blowing the right way. It actually not, not only might you have like a high tide that brings more water to the shore, but then the wind can push lots of water onto the shore. So, um, so say hurricane Sandy in 2012, which impacted the New York, New Jersey area, um, there, the storm surge caused just huge amounts of damage um, because it caused, yeah, it caused just tons and tons of flooding. And then when that flooding happens, it causes a lot of erosion to happen as well. Um, so it's often these big events um, with the combined impact of sea level rise and stronger storms that cause more storm surge that really cause kind of like, a, um, yeah, they erode away big parts of beaches and things like that. Um, so yeah, sea level rise is definitely worrisome and more and people who live near coastlines definitely need to be preparing and whether that's um, action that an individual takes by raising their homes up on stilts or deciding to move somewhere else further away from the coast, or maybe it's things that um, like that are done on a, like a government scale, like building jetties um, and, um, and, and levees and other types of um, protection. So that's what's happened in the city of New Orleans. Um, Hurricane Katrina, obviously, in 2005 caused a huge amount of damage to the city of New Orleans. Um, but they have, the Army Corps of Engineers has built a lot of infrastructure to prevent flooding. And so Hurricane Ida, which hit in September of 
um, or August, late August, early September of 2021, there, it really, it was a very strong storm, but it, the levees did manage to protect a large part of New Orleans. Who gets protected by infrastructure like that, though, becomes a really big question um, because, say, the city of New Orleans was protected, but people who live outside of the jetty um, and levee areas then are not protected. So that becomes a climate justice issue. So to get back to what people do individually to help the climate change crisis, um, what's a person's carbon footprint? Um, so a person's carbon footprint is how much carbon you emit on a day-to-day basis by doing things like driving a car, heating your home, cooling your home. Um, uh, some of the foods that we eat have really high carbon footprints. Um, so that's what a carbon footprint is, is it's like how much we as individuals emit. The thing is, though, is that I don't really, if you and your family are privileged enough to be able to do things to reduce your carbon footprint by all means you should be doing those things that's that is important that said i really think it's important for us to focus more on larger scale structural change um things like updating the electrical grid are that's really really important making sure that there's net metering so that when someone installs solar panels they they're affordable um that's what a carbon footprint is but i think it's really important for us to not for instance a fossil fuel company a few years ago tweeted out like use our carbon footprint calculator to learn how you can help solve climate change and to me, that really seems like the pot calling the kettle black. Like fossil fuel companies are a lot to blame for the climate climate crisis they're in, we're in because of how much disinformation they put out for years and years and years. And if we, I really see that if we start implementing large scale climate solutions, that's just going to improve the world overall. Like it will make us less dependent on foreign fossil fuels. Um, it will make cities and towns more bike accessible um and and more and like with more public transportation so um it will make our homes and our homes more more homes and other buildings more fuel efficient and more heat efficient um so we really do have there are a lot of changes that can be made that will improve our lives overall And by focusing on things like don't eat beef, I think in a lot of ways it kind of turns people off because it's just saying like, oh, don't like, in order to solve climate change, we have to have this life where we're giving up all of these things. Um, And yes, we should reduce how much we're consuming. But at the same time, I don't think we need to be telling people that they have to be absolutely perfect in order to in order to help solve climate change. Like I'm doing what I can, but I like finances, like I can't buy a Tesla. I'm not, I don't have those kinds of means. Um, But 
I'm doing things like marching at climate rallies and helping university students figure out how to use their talents and skills to find jobs where they're working on climate solutions. Um, I work on my town's sustainability committee as a way to help the town overall reduce its carbon footprint rather than, so I spend more time on that rather than focusing on um, my own personal actions because I'm not perfect and I don't think anyone else in the climate movement needs to be perfect. Instead, what we need to do is figure out what our gifts and our talents um, that we have, can we can put to use to help, to help implement large scale climate solutions. So looking at what you said about infrastructure, uh, I think fossil fuels are largely used because of their cheap cost. So how can we like combat these economic boundaries to sort of move towards better infrastructure? Um, well, we can uh, limit government subsidies on fossil fuels and increase government subsidies on renewable energy. That's an important way to flip the economics. Um, and the cost of wind and solar, like like fossil is go the cost of wind and solar is going down substantially, um, and they are becoming cheaper and cheaper. Um, so. Fossil fuels are a limited resource that we have to that companies have to spend huge amounts of money to dig up from under the ground, um, or use thing processes like fracking and stuff to pull them up from under the ground. Wind and solar are free; like the wind is going to blow, the sun is going to shine, and we don't have to be writing a check to Mother Nature for those for those things. So the economics are that renewable energy is going to be cheaper. And like wind and solar are already almost at parity with fossil fuels. We do have issues, though, in that the infrastructure for um, energy economy based on fossil on based on clean energy is not is not there yet. So we really do need very large scale investments from the government in order for us to be implementing um, implementing green energy at a pace that that needs to happen. If if we if it was thirty years ago and 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 we were at this stage in terms of renewables, sure, let economics drive drive what's happening and just people will realize, oh, wait, it's cheaper for me to like electrify my home with solar panels than it is by buying electricity um, from the power company. So, but we don't really have that time. It needs to happen faster than that. So we do need both private and um, government investment just to make the transition happen as fast as possible. Um, the other thing I really think that's important, I think there needs to be a cost of carbon that reflects the amount of environmental degradation that polluting carbon costs. So um, just recently, the government announced they wanted to increase the cost of carbon from about $50 per ton to about $75 per ton. I think that that's a really good change because it means that companies when they emit co2 into the atmosphere they should be paying for that for that pollution and the money that they're paying should be going towards climate solutions um whether it be like i mentioned before protecting and restoring wetlands or whether it's like a technology solution like um, carbon um, direct carbon capture um, which there are a few plants that have have started to come up um, to, to actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere.
So we have the technology. It just it's just a matter of the like political will to 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 implement it. And the economics really are there. Like the cost of renewables has come down so substantially that it really is a better investment. We just need the infrastructure to be there. So as mentioned, uh, one of the biggest contributors to global warming and climate change seems to be the methods of sourcing energy. But are there any like other alternatives to burning fossil fuels that are sort of not that publicized or more like frontier methods? Yeah, like I, there are. Um, I definitely have my hope more in solar and wind at large scales because these are technologies that are proven, that we know that they work, that they, um, they're they there. We know, that, we know that. So in some ways, I think investment into, into the technology that we already have is most important. Having said that, though, um, I am not opposed to nu- nuclear energy, um, especially small-scale nuclear energy. Um, that that is a way that like that um, we can that can help in the transition to uh, green energy economy. Um, things like things like nuclear. Nuclear fission is what we think of as typical nuclear power. Nuclear fusion, that's one that people talk about, but it it seems to always be 10 years away and has been for many decades. So, um, you know, that would take a really big breakthrough to get that to the point where it's actually usable. Um, things like hyd- hydrogen as a power source, um, that's another technology. I know there being big investments into that. Um, I I don't really know where the state of that is. I have to admit, um, things like biofuels. So instead of using each burning ancient plants in the form of fossil fuels, burning biofuels, which is usually like waste, waste plant matter. Um, like for instance, jets, that's something that's gonna be really hard to decarbonize. And if there are ways that we can make jet fuel out of out of recently grown plants as opposed to million year old plants, I think that, that that's gonna be important. Um, I also, you know, potentially fuels from things like macroalgae or phytoplankton, which is microalgae. Um, I do hope that those that those technologies improve because I like we are still going to need fuel to do things. Um, and so getting it from green sources, I think, is really important. How can we track the project progress in the efforts to stop climate change? Well, there's a few ways like um, you can look and see like how much what the CO2 levels are in the atmosphere. Um, that's maybe not the most hopeful way to do it because we aren't seeing, like it's still going up and up and up. And you can think of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, it's like a bathtub. Our emissions are the tap that are adding water to that bathtub. And then anything we're removing is what's coming out the drain. So in order for the level in the bathtub to start to go down, not only do we have to turn the tap essentially off, but we need a drain to start pulling that pulling that water out of that tub. Um, so if you're just looking at CO2 levels in the atmosphere, 
they're going to keep going up because we aren't to the point where we've reduced emissions substantially enough enough to, to start drawing down the levels. Um, I really like tools like En-ROADS, um, which is made by Climate Interactive. Um, it's, it's an online um, tool where you can look at how changes in various sectors like um, like like subsidizing renewables or planting lots of trees, you can see what kind of impact they're going to have going forward. Um, I think it's also really important to pay attention to international climate meetings like, um, well, the Paris Agreement is the biggest, um, that biggest agreement that happened and a lot of countries are still working on their Paris goals, but um, the Conference of Parties, otherwise known as COP, um, happens every November and so like pay attention to what ha is happening at these international meetings when they when they do occur um, and I think also just in some ways thinking about it locally like look at just try to find the changes that are happening in your community like what is your town your town might have a sustainability committee are there ways that you can get involved with that what kind of actions are they doing on a local level to bring say electric vehicle charging stations or to bring bike lanes or to bring local um local food to to people that live in your town i think in a lot of ways getting involved with efforts like that can be really helpful that if you, um, uh, yeah, if you like, it can feel like a really overwhelming task, but no one person is going to solve climate change. We need, we need all sorts of people working on this problem. And sometimes it's most helpful to get involved with community organizations and, um, and really do work that are bigger than yourself, but kind of at community scale change, because then you can really see the changes that are happening, um, happening to, to in your community, and that that can be really rewarding. I think one of the things that we really have to make sure we don't forget is issues of climate justice. That the people most impacted by climate change are going to be the ones who have done the least to cause climate change. And I think it's really important to remember that the climate solutions that we implement really do need to focus on the most vulnerable communities um, because they are the ones that are, are most impacted and, ha and um, may not have the means to, to adapt to climate change. And we will need to be adapting to climate change. So, um, so yeah, I just think whatever climate solutions we're implementing, I think it's really important to keep the issues of climate justice in mind. So I think that about wraps it up. Uh, thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Warner. Oh, it's my pleasure. With ever-increasing industrial developments exacerbating climate change, it is essential that we work to protect the Earth. Greenpeace is a global nonprofit organization working to limit the structures harming our environment with nonviolent creative action. If you are interested in donating to help and end climate change, please visit greenpeace.org or raise further awareness of these topics through sharing these podcasts or discussing these topics with family and friends today. With more knowledge, we can combat problems and promote a healthy earth. Thank you for listening.